The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm Margaret Lyons, here with Matt zoller Sites, and on this week's episode, we talk about Showtime's new show, Billions, and on Showtime as a concept in general. Plus, Matt, Gazelle, and I caught up with Malcolm Jamal Warner to talk about his work on the new FX series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Sir, you need to turn your engine off and step from the vehicle now! Do you know what's going on here? O.J. moved that seat with a gun to his head! That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Who said this deal is going to close? Ben said it would this morning. Me? Everyone's saying it. Who is this? My new analyst. Well, if we hired you, you must be a genius. Yale? Stanford, then Wharton. Okay, Stanford Wharton. Electric Sun is controlled by Kazowitz. He also owns 19.3% of Lumatherm, backdoored through his stake in Southern Wind. You see that block trade last Thursday come out of Merrill? Yeah. That was Fortress cashing out their shorts before the merger. Wasn't it? Trade was at 12.52 when everyone was at lunch, which tells me they wanted it to be missed. You guys caught it, which is something, I guess. But you're looking at it backward. Electric Sun's offer was just a ploy to temporarily prop up Lumatherm. Typical Kazowitz play to bail on a loser. He's an animal. The block trade was Kazowitz getting out of Southern Wind, getting out of Lumatherm. He wrote the story, now he's out, which means you need to be out. In fact, short. It'll slide to 32 and change after word breaks. Wow. That's a good catch, Axe. My cholesterol's high enough. Don't butter my ass, Danzig. Just get smarter. So, uh, Showtime's new... Uh, prestige, I guess, series Billions debuted a couple weeks ago. It's about Wall Street and finance and finance bros and sex and power and blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> Matt, do you love it as much as I clearly I do not? <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. you, uh, I, can, I can feel the love from here from all the way across this, this table. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was disappointed in it. And it's a little hard to separate my dislike of the show from... Um, my feeling that this particular kind of drama feels a little 2005 to me. So what do you mean by this kind of drama? Well, it's a, it, extremely testosterone driven, very much about power, about who's, you know, who's got power, who's losing power. And and it's also a, a show that is based, the interactions are based largely around threats. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the dialogue is about do this or I'm going to do this to you. Or the last person who did that to me ended up blah, blah, blah. And it's like there's so much just sheer aggression on the show. But it's not we're not talking about gangsters here. We're not talking about drug dealers or people, you know, people in the Old West bringing opium into Deadwood or something like that. It just, it's even more some, insidious. It, se- it, seems com- it seems kind of comical in a way that I don't think the show acknowledges in the way that it ought to. Well, I think the show's sort of grasp of tone is limited because, so we have Damien Lewis stars as Bobby Axelrod, who is like this billionaire, um, and Paul Giamatti is the attorney sort of trying to take him down. Chuck Rhodes. Um, and I think the whole show is spent with everyone's veins popping out. And like yeah. every minute is like, and that's yeah. it. And that is the only note it hits basically ever. Everyone is at 11 for moments of intimacy, for fight scenes, for scenes in court, scenes at work, scenes at therapy. Everything is just that the entire time. And I think if the show sort of like steered into its soapiness, we could have a little bit more 
fun. But I feel like every episode of the show is like really thinks it's doing something like special and interesting. And it's just like, just go ahead and be trashy. And then this would have more life in it. Well, there's kind of a subcategory of American drama that has popped up in the last few years where the drama is about uh, uh, white guys and their massive amounts of money. Yes. And, And I'm not inherently interested in that particular story. And there are exceptions where I feel like the storytellers have for whatever reason, done enough to kind of liven it up and find a fresh angle on it or or really just find a really specific tone. Like I think Wolf of Wall Street, you know, was an incredibly divisive film, but I thought it was very, very effective. And whether you liked it or not, I think there was no denying that it had a very firm grasp on what it, what it was doing and how it was trying to say it. And, you know. Yeah, two or three great movies crammed into one. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you can take that however you want. Um, but uh, But this didn't really do it for me. And I've been told that you know, around about episode five or six, uh, things start to take a turn, and it doesn't feel like they're quite glamorizing these guys as much. But um, I'm increasingly disinclined to uh, ride it out that way because there's just so much TV on. Yeah, I'm super disinclined. And maybe to that's ride unfair out. to the show. I'm willing to allow that that may be unfair to the show, but that's just my position. I mean, I don't think you get to insist that your your show exists in a vacuum right like you're part of a tv landscape i think this is a show that all of the the seams are showing to me like all of the ooh, you know what this show used to do we could do that like ooh, let's do like naughty sex stuff and there's a lot of naughty sex stuff but without any real uh intrigue to it i mean the show opens with what we eventually learn is um maggie sif peeing on paul giamatti and putting out a cigarette on his nipple. Right. Um, they're married. And this is something that they're afraid is going to come out. I, I, Yeah. I mean, I guess I just feel like I can. we've seen other shows be much more erotic. We've seen other shows have much sexier sex, certainly. Or more, um, or more comical sex. You know, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I didn't think that it was intended to be comical. I think we were supposed to be scandalized by it. And it's just like, man, I've seen True Blood. Like, I'm not scandalized by this. Like, <laughs> right. Right? You know, it's like, I've seen a giant blood <laughs> I, I orgy. Like, say, you're not, seen, this I, is not. You know, I think I think the only thing they haven't done on True Blood is like have a werewolf fuck a leprechaun or something. Well, that's probably... Only because leprechauns were not part of that. <laughs> but that is the only reason. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, it's hard. It's hard to feel like this is really covering new territory. I also was thinking about it sort of in the context of how Showtime shows choose to be because uh-huh. i think there's sort of this always oh, a bridesmaid feeling for showtime versus hbo for a while there has been for quite a long time the current lineup for showtime it's shameless homeland ray donovan which i think if you love ray donovan you might like billions uh yeah uh, masters of sex which ups and downs but i think is, is better than most of the shows on this list penny dreadful uh which is at least interesting i think penny dreadful is pretty amazing actually. Uh, the Affair, which is definitely like, I can't stop fucking this rich white guy. Um, <laughs> billions. That was the original title. Episodes, which is also the same thing. House of Lies. Uh, but then if we look at their sort of previous lineup, Californication is, I think, maybe the... Yeah. I don't know. What's the disparaging term for gold standard? Uh, <laughs> um, the pyrite standard. Oof, yeah. So, you know, like you were saying, that whole like kind of anti-hero genre, but it's not even quite that no there's a lot of there's kind of smug asshole characters yeah. uh, find a home on showtime i've noticed and also <laughs> characters who are a handful but ultimately worth the trouble because they're so brilliant which is true Dexter, on other Nurse on, jackie yeah which is true on other 
networks as well. That's sure. by no ne- means a, a unique to Showtime. Um, but for me, the big issue with a lot of these Showtime dramas, and I don't include Penny Dreadful because I think it's excellent. I don't include, and, and at the very least, it's like, what the fuck are they doing? That's crazy. I don't think you can accuse Penny Dreadful of copying. No, no, like... no. They're really doing. They're really doing something that is, as far as I'm concerned, pretty unique on TV right now. But um, more often, you get things like, and we've talked about this before, like Homeland. Where uh, it feels like, and although I don't think anybody's really officially cop to this, it feels like notes have distorted the purpose of the show in a way that's really not good. Yeah. I mean, I think Dexter is probably one of the calling cards for Showtime, certainly. It was probably, it was definitely the show that you kind of, before Showtime had Dexter and after Showtime had Dexter. And I think that's probably why that show stuck around much, much longer than it had any sort of creative right to. Um, and I think that kind of defines a lot of what I think of as like the Showtime show, which is something like a little bit more fun, a little bit more glam, a little bit more um, edgy, dirty, yeah, whatever. Right. In this way that that HBO is going to be a little bit more um, rich, kind of. Well, they're or, glossy. HBO yeah. is very glossy. Everything um, they do is prestige. Like they're like Miramax was in the 1990s where you can see them throwing large handfuls of money at the screen. Right. I mean, Even I think, on little stuff. I think if we have sort of like the newsroom, I would put up against um, billions, right? As it's like, oh, this is what happens when these ostensible virtues of our network turn to vices. Right. And this is what we get, which is, you know, a high profile staff, um, a high profile cast, and a weird sense of like misplaced self-righteousness. I remember I wrote a piece to this effect probably 15 or 20 years ago about Showtime where it was very frustrating that they had um, what seemed like potentially great shows, but then they very rarely consistently rise to the level that I think they're capable of. And I've never been able to quite put my finger on what the reason for that might be. And I've heard that it's ill-advised network interference. I've heard that it's uh, it's on the other end, you know, that for whatever reason, the producers would come in with a, a great idea for a show that w- would have been fantastic for one season, but doesn't have any ability to sustain itself. I've heard all sorts of other explanations, but um, it's very frustrating. And there, uh, every every network has has its own set of problems. And I think this is, you know, this is the Showtime problem. I think HBO has its own problems. I think FX has its own problems. We've talked about them here. But, yes. But it just, it bothers me because I feel like Showtime has taken risks on um, stories, on content, as they call it, that I think HBO is too set in its ways to try out. Like, I don't think that HBO would ever do a show like Penny Dreadful now. I think, you know, True Blood is a very different kind of show. Like, it's not, it's just not as formally inventive. It's not as lyrical and kind of outrageous in its filmmaking. It's a lot more of a kind of a comfort food kind of show. Man, that is, if that's your comfort food show, like a weird (laughs) diet. Yeah. I mean, I also think, you know, I think Weeds is a good show or was a good show for a period See, of its Weeds life. Weeds frustrated me, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, reason. I think there's there are some really great things that happen on Weeds. Yes. Um, but then we just have this very long run out where we're really struggling to, like, keep up with stuff. Um, there are actually a couple, though, that I did love. Brotherhood, I feel like, was one that really never got its fair uh, share of the attention. I think that show is great brotherhood had its mo- brotherhood had its moments it had the misfortune to come on after the sopranos and air kind of at around the same time yeah. as the sopranos so it always suffered in comparison to that but it struck some interesting notes and it seemed like it was trying to be 
you know, The Sopranos and The Wire at the same time, which is not a bad thing to want to be. I have, I'll always have special affection for that show because the first and so far only uh, feature film that I've directed, there's a very brief scene in Brotherhood where two characters are talking and the poster is visible in the background. So five bonus points for Brotherhood. (laughs) I I at least feel like Brotherhood, in all the ways that it did seem like, oh, this is going to get lumped into everything that's trying to be The Sopranos, I did think it had more of its own ideas about, like, morality and family that weren't as directly, like, this is the same thing The Sopranos says. I thought it had, like, a slightly different take on that. You know, every title of the episode was part of, like, a a reference to a wisdom text, but I thought was sort of... Right. Maybe indulgent, but also sort of smart and interesting. What was that show? What was that show that was about? Uh, it was set in four alternate years, and they would cross cut between the years. Was it Leap Years? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, I, I remember liking that one, even though that was also a very frustratingly unrealized show. Yeah. I thought, but the concept of it was so fascinating, and I liked the fact that they were. They had one, maybe two timelines that were set in the future, and you were. I was kind of wondering, like in. 10 or 15 years how uh, how wrong will this seem but (laughs) now but now uh, it actually seems fairly accurate it was a world of you know nearly total surveillance that everyone was participating in actively predict uh all the ass-to-mouth conversations that billions would be having (laughs) that's like a big chunk of that show and what's so like I love the cast on the show. <laughs> yeah. I think they're great. Yeah. And and Paul Giamatti is just, you know, he's a national treasure. He's fantastic. Okay, sorry. Look, uh, you know, I'm like pro him. Paul Giamatti in, like, as life goes. But I think the performance choices that are happening here are insane. <laughs> so, like, there's um, an Amazon show, I think it debuts in February, Culling Stories from the New Yorker. Yeah, um, I've seen the pilot of it. They translate one of the um, shouts and murmurs columns from maybe like two years ago about uh, Balzac drinking 50 cups of coffee in a yeah. day. And Paul Giamatti like plays him and, and sort of like recites this goofy list of every thought that you have per cup of coffee. And it's funny, but the whole time it's like, this is actually the same character as you play on Billions. <laughs> I'm just like, ah, and screaming. And like, and it's played obviously for laughs as like a part of this like shouts and murmurs come to life. But on Billions, I think we're supposed to just be like, slow clap. Like what an amazing triumph of like screaming. And it doesn't do it for me. And it, if anything, reminds me of why I really was the person who hated the uh, John Adams miniseries. Oh, oh no! <laughs> I, Matt really? looks so aggrieved. Oh, oh if you no. guys can see his face. He's like, oh, str- yeah. Okay. I mean, that failed for me primarily on food noise being <laughs> a huge part of, especially the first two episodes of that show. And if you know me, that's like a real deal breaker. Yes. Um, but that show being very uh, jowl oriented and just of like <laughs> all of the. And like I, I don't mean in terms of like that is not a good way to have a face. I mean in terms of like that's where all the acting is occurring is in like yeah. jawlines and and strong men either clenching or opening their mouth. Like all of that being the like this is where our drama lives. Gel oriented drama. Yeah, and I just like have a jod pretty limited <laughs> interest in that. Um, I also think for billions in particular, there's just. We're inventing all of this stuff to make it seem more scandalous. For example, on the third episode, there's this whole arc about um, a woman releasing a 9-11 memoir. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's part of and that's part of uh, uh, Axel Rudd's backstory, mm-hmm. too. I don't think people are releasing that many 
high-profile 9-11 memoirs right now. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, no, wow, every your book tour. And it's like, I just think for one second about how memoirs get published. This isn't happening. I don't know. I, why are we making up shit when the truth is that, like, there is enough drama and intrigue? And, and one of the consulting producers and creators of the show is Andrew Ross Sorkin, who writes a lot about finance and a lot about... Um, you know, like the ins and outs of this kind of thing. We have to like invent this weird other drama of like, and now the mom is going to keep that guy, that lady's kid from getting to stamp or just like, why don't you tell the actual stories and we can heighten them and brighten them and make them soapier. But this kind of weird like, oh, uh, the only thing that's going to be real here is like when we talk real dirty. Do one moment of Googling. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it just doesn't seem like a hard yeah. thing to get right. And, and to Well, have... I, I'm not, I'm not going to attack them on the basis of their realism on the financial part of it because it sounds real enough to me. You know, I mean, I don't know a lot about it, but, but I'm able to understand what they're doing. When they're talking about moving massive amounts of money from this place to that place and setting up a shell corporation and following the flow of the money to reveal this or that fact, which they can then use to prosecute them. Like, I'm, I'm actually kind of impressed that they're able to do that so that a guy like me who does not read the financial pages can more or less get the gist of what they're doing. I so think I feel those like are the parts that I feel are... like they're on pretty good, pretty solid ground with that stuff. Right, that's the stuff that it's like, okay, that to me is like an interesting sort of feat of strength where we have somebody explaining pretty convoluted um, processes and still being able to find like drama there and, and story there and, and setting up the audience to know like this is how the dominoes are supposed to fall. And so when they do, we know we've succeeded. And when they don't, we know something's gone wrong. But then to sort of not pay anywhere near as much attention to the mechanics of any other aspect of the story is frustrating. I also think the female characters could are just they're bad they're so they're underwritten bad. yeah um well uh, yeah and they talk a little bit too much like angry young men a lot of the time for me i just i don't know this show just like it, i i couldn't it just didn't hold me at all and at every point where it could have had like a thing to say it was just like haha i know what i'll say blowjob <laughs> it was like oh <laughs> Okay, like, I guess that's up to you. That's on Showtime next fall. <laughs> yeah. Spiros, do you know the story about the mouse that starts roaring like a lion? No. Well, it doesn't end well for the goddamn mouse. Do the people you work with pretend they're impressed when you speak in riddles like some kung fu instructor from the movies? Well, let me be direct. I know you sent that reporter in to ask about Axe Capital. Why would I do that? We're on the same side. You're on your side. I'm on mine. But we can both benefit. And besides, it's the right thing to do. Spiros, you wouldn't know the right thing to do if it kneeled down and sucked your tiny goddamn cock! You pull any shit like that again, and I will lose holy fucking hell on you! We're here with Malcolm Jamal Warner, who you'll obviously know as Theo Huxtable from The Cosby Show. In The People versus O.J. Simpson, Malcolm plays A.C. Cowlings, who is the driver of the white Bronco. We caught up with Malcolm via phone to talk about tonight's episode, much of which takes place inside the Bronco. Sir, step out of the vehicle! No, 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 hell no! Sir, you need to turn your engine off and step from the vehicle now! Do you know what's going on here? O.J.'s in the back seat with a gun to his head! 
Can I speak with Mr. Simpson? No, I ain't speaking to nobody. I ain't speaking to nobody. Tell him the guns. What? 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 You tell him. I, I know, OJ. OJ, I'm a hazard, okay? I know. We don't want a situation here. We don't want anybody to get hurt. You want to go. OJ, OJ, OJ. Tell him, tell him, tell him. Okay, get back out. That's not happening. Get back off. So I wanted to just start off by asking you about how you got involved with this show, what the audition process was like, if you could just walk us through that. Ironically enough, I had actually auditioned for the role of Chris Darden. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was a great audition. Um, and then after a couple of months, I did not hear anything, so I figured somebody else had a better audition. <laughs> um, so I just kind of, you know, left, you know, forgot about it. And then... Uh, I got a call from Ryan Murphy's office offering me the role of AC. Were you familiar with AC at the time? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I knew who he was, and I knew about you know, his relationship with OJ. But you know, it's interesting because I tell people, I tell actors all the time, just about the audition process. And when you go in, it's not always necessarily about that role that you're auditioning for. You know, because sometimes, you know, no matter how good you are, you may not be right for the role. Right. And, you know, and in and, and a case like this, in other cases, you know, they'll sometimes come back and, you know, like your work and, you know, find another part that you're you know, more right for. The episode that you are a large part of is the Bronco car chase. And it's such a fascinating hour of television uh, being with you and OJ inside of the Bronco. Can you take us through just the technical aspects of filming this scene and like, did you actually have to shut the freeway down, for example? Yeah, we actually shut uh, a leg of the uh, 710 freeway down uh, for a weekend. So we're literally out on this freeway for uh, for two days uh, doing this this uh, you know the Bronco chase. So it was pretty, it was pretty involved and you know well choreographed. But you've got so many um, moving pieces. I mean, literally, you're talking about you know 20 different vehicles between the Bronco, the police cars, and the other cars, um, you know, that we're weaving in between. You know, I, I make the joke that even though I know we're filming television, um, there's something very surreal about driving in the truck and looking in the rearview mirror and seeing, you know, almost 20 cop cars behind me. <laughs> <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> yeah, were, it's kind of unnerving. And you were actually, were you actually driving? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And was there anyone seated to the right of you? I'm assuming. Well, I mean, in some, in some time, you know, in some states, there was you know an actual camera and camera person right there. And, you know, and then there was like there was you know, you know, for some of the outside shots, there was uh, this really cool camera truck. It looked like a like a Porsche SUV with a camera crane on top of it. So you get all these cool shots with the you know the SUV driving by and all these cool sweeping uh, crane shots. When you're playing a when you're playing a real person, this is an entire story that's filled with real people, and not just real people, but real people that millions and millions and millions watched on television week after week. So we have a sense of what they look like, how they move, how they talk, all of that stuff. As an actor, how do you? approximate a character like that or do you even try to like did you did you talk to the directors about this was it even a concern no i don't think for 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 this show and especially uh, at least not as far as i was concerned uh with the role of ac because you know there's not really a whole lot on ac the people may you know know who he is they may even know what he looks like a little bit but 
there's not enough uh, footage on him in terms of uh, how he carries himself, how he walks. Um, so, you know, with this particular role, I didn't feel like I had to try to do an exact match because there you know, wasn't much to go on. Right. Um, a, a lot of the, you know, I scoured the internet trying to find information on AC, and most of the information that I was able to find was really more about AC and OJ's friendship rather than the man himself. So, you know, I ended up looking at the relationship and looking at the complexities of the dynamic of that kind of relationship and, you know, sort of building the character myself. And what sense did you get of his relationship with O.J. in your research? Well, he was, you know, a very devoted friend. Oftentimes you'll you'll see people in the public eye and you'll see, you know, their right-hand person and you always tend to wonder if that person really has, you know, that their best interest at heart. And what I was able to find of AC was that AC was really there for OJ. You know, they'd been friends since about eighth grade. So AC was was really the guy to kind of keep OJ out of trouble. You know, definitely had his back. Um, definitely the kind of person where if OJ said, AC, let's take a ride, AC's not going to ask why, where are we going? AC's like, let's go. And whether he, you know, believed that his friend was guilty or not, you know, that took a back seat to his instinct, which is to be there for his best friend. Mm-hmm. And, and I honestly believe that if OJ and AC were friends after the trial, that OJ would not be in jail now, because I don't think AC would have let OJ go to Vegas with a gun to try to get his stuff back. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So just going back to the car chase for a second, those scenes with you and Cuba are so high intensity the whole time. You're both, it's just so raw. And I'm, I'm wondering what that, like, how can you, can you explain how that felt between you and Cuba? And also, did you have to do a lot of takes? Was it very emotionally trying? Um, yeah, definitely, because like I said, you know, we, we were there uh, in that truck for two days. So, you know, at, at some point, just just being in the truck itself is draining. Going through the number of takes and really having to keep that kind of emotional intensity up. Uh, yeah, for two days, it definitely gets draining. But, you know, it's, again, that's one of those scenes where we had to take some kind of creative license because no one knows what really went on in front of that truck, but OJ and AC. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to take a little bit of creative license in terms of, you know, what we believe went on in that truck. And you had the, the 911 calls to go off of a little bit, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. How did you feel about the trial at the time, and did cha- did working on the show change your thoughts on it at all? No, I don't think, I don't think working on the show or even watching the show will necessarily change anyone's you know, prior thoughts to the case. The show does a great job of kind of taking you on, on, on the ride and telling some other backstories that we didn't necessarily know from watching the trial. Like for example, I had no idea that there was any, anything going on between Marsha Clark and Chris Dart. <laughs> you know, I watched some of the shows and was like, oh, wow, who knew? Yeah, I had the same reaction. <laughs> Did Cuba have any opinion on whether or not O.J. did it? 
We didn't really talk about that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When you're playing a character uh, based on a real person, do you do you make decisions like that? Like, I know some actors want to learn everything they possibly can and develop an opinion about everything that they did, and others would prefer really just to create their own character and not worry too much about any of that. Yeah, and I think it really depends on you know on, on what the character is, uh, but I definitely think in this case, I think everybody's approach was really coming to it, uh, you know, coming coming to the journey. Uh, within themselves, like no one met with any of the real people, because uh, no one really wanted to be influenced by, uh, you know, by that person. I also wanted to ask you, you know, this show. A lot of the conversation around it has been about how timely it feels because of the, a lot of the way, a lot of the themes, and how it contextualizes a lot of things that we didn't realize at the time and with Black Lives Matter happening right now. You've been vocal about this on Twitter as well and I'm curious if you agree that the OJ case is an effective way of looking at all those issues through a lens that we hadn't previously applied to it. Well, I think the, I think the, the OJ case and, you know, and, and this show revisiting the trial, it definitely points in the face of police brutality uh, within the black community is not something new. It's something that's, that, that's been ongoing. And to watch a television show based on something 20 years ago and those themes being just as relevant uh, and, and prevalent as they are today, I think that really you know, speaks a lot to uh, you know, how far we've not come in terms of the issue of police brutality in the black community being addressed. Well, we're all excited to see what kinds of conversations come out of the show. Yeah, I think it'd be very interesting. Are there any roles that you, types of roles that you would like to play that you haven't had a chance to play yet? Since we are on a podcast, you know, people might hear this and <laughs> say, hey, Malcolm. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I tend to lean toward darker characters, you know, and, and probably a, a lot of it because people, you know, still so easily associate me with, uh, you know, with, with feel. So, um and even even during the time of that show, I always sought out playing other kinds of characters, playing dark characters. And, and, and I think whenever I'm playing a dark character, it's always a pleasant surprise because it's not what you expect. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody nobody will see you coming, and that that could right. actually be indefinitely true since that that since uh, Theo made such an impression on people. Yeah, and also I know a lot of people, you know, who are really you know you know great upbeat people and. You know, you would not even realize this other dark side, which is still just as much a part of them. I, what do you want me to do, OJ? I should die. No, put the gun down, Juice. I'm tired of you driving me around, AC. Tell me what you need. Take me to the cemetery. No, man, we did that already. I don't know what is happening. Why is this happening to me? I don't understand. I had such a beautiful family, Nicole and Sydney and Justin. You still got the kids, Juice, all right? Think about the kids. Just, just take me home. I want to see Mama. Brother, we've got to have the police in California in pursuit. They might not let us. I want to stand! Hey, this is AC. I have OJ in the car. Who is this? You know who this is, goddammit. I have OJ in the car. You tell the police to back off. He's got a gun to his head. Hold on a moment. Where are you? Is everything else okay? What? No! What kind of stupid-ass question is that? Everything is terrible. And you just clear the freeway. We're going to Brentwood. 
stupid ass. for this week's episode of the Vulture TV Podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV Podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV Podcast is part of the Panoply Network. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at MarginCharge. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazella Thanks for listening.